Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. We also wanted to mention that our second site, graph.nerd-journey.com, is also live. That's the knowledge graph and linked notes version of our main page's show notes that we developed to make it easier to explore our episodes, guests, and topics. All right, this is episode 222. And in episode 220, we talked about John getting fired. Episode 221, we talked about John getting hired. But you know what, John? As I was thinking about it, I had some follow-up questions on that interview process that you went through and how it may have aligned to some of the guidance that we gave out back in our Career Foundation series, speaking of interviews in episode 205 and 206. So I was wondering if you're okay with it. Maybe we can dig into that interview process a little bit more, and I'm just going to grill you with questions. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. Okay. Feel good? Feel ready? Yeah, let's do it. So the first one is, did someone at Nutanix tell you what the interview process was going to look like from beginning to end when you first applied? Or was it more of a, hey, you're in the next round at each junction point? I think that the structure was well established basically from the first informational call. So the hiring uh, director reached out to me and when we finally made contact, we basically went through what the position looked like and what the interview process would look like if I was interested. So that full structure was pretty well established from the beginning. So I, I knew what it was going to look like and and felt pretty good about it. Okay. And if you remember, what were some of those first curiosity questions you wanted to ask when you had the informal chat with your former manager? who is now your manager at Nutanix. Yeah. The thing that I think it, it always makes sense to try to figure out is if you're walking into a disaster or if you're walking into something that you're not qualified for. So I was sensitive, especially to the latter, because it would be a first-time manager position for me. I kind of trust the people in my network to not try to bring me in for a situation where there's a bunch of landmines and the entire thing's about to blow up. That kind of doesn't make sense, right? That if you have somebody in your network reaching out to you, it's usually because they ha have a problem to solve, but not, they, they generally don't try to solve their problems while the ship is going down and they're trying to leave, right? So <laughs> that, that wouldn't make any sense. So I kind of trusted that. I, I mean, uh, of course, it always makes sense to, to ask questions about, you know, the opportunity to make sense, make sure that 
you know, you just do your due diligence that, you know, I wouldn't ever advocate like not making sure that the situation is, is a good one. Yeah. Cause at this point after that formal or that informal first conversation is really just you deciding whether it makes sense for you to apply. Yeah. There's probably two things going on. It's, it's always two ways, right? So of course, for me, part of it is what is the actual opportunity? Is it a good opportunity? Is it a good fit for me? And the hiring manager is always trying to figure out, you know, similar things. Is this person actually interested? Would it be a good fit? You know, my gut instinct to reach out to them and ask them if they were interested in this process, you know, made me think that it was a good fit, but maybe we haven't worked together for a while. Maybe we don't know how we've grown in the intervening years, you know, so all of that stuff needs to come into play. So, you know, there's always a two-way evaluation, always. Well, that leads me to my next question. Since you had worked for this boss before, maybe there's a level of comfort, right? There's some rapport. You had a good experience before. Your boss had a good experience before. That's why you're talking this time. Is there any concern or level of nuance to consider in the fact that each of your experiences have differed since that time and you're, you would be coming back to work in the same way again, right? You would be the, the direct report to your manager, right? right? They would be the manager again. Are there any nuances that people who might be going into that situation need to think about that maybe you thought about during this process? Sure. I, had no idea what went on, you know, at the job after I left. So again, you know, maybe we went in different directions and, you know, the level of trust and the working rapport that we had, you know, needs to be rebuilt or needs to be reexamined or, or any of those things like that is, I think, basic due diligence. But I think you also like going into the process, I had a level of trust that you know, what I knew of my former manager was probably still true. You know, that when we work together, we work together well, and we probably still would work together well. There's always questions, you know, about the process that one should ask just to make sure that that is the case. What are the expectations? Like how, you know, you know that this would be a first-time managerial position for me. How would I uh, succeed at that? You know, is there anything that you can do to help me succeed at that? Like set, setting me up with a uh, mentorships from people that you know you think could help me make that transition you know that that's the kind of you know basic i think set of questions that one should ask when one is in kind of a growth mode right uh and i would ask those same types of questions if i was going to a new company right or a new role in the same company well obviously you know i'm changing roles so this would be a new set of responsibilities how do you think i should go about getting help to, you know, come up to speed on this. Or if you're going to a new company, oh, you know, this is a technology that, you know, your version of this technology I haven't covered before. What is your process or your plan for me to succeed? I know what my ideas are, but what what are your ideas? Those are always questions that one should ask. You know, part of that is, you know, kind of a presumptive close. I mean, you heard the way that I asked those questions, like, you know, when I come, what would that look like? Sure. You know, that's just part of being in sales for a while. You just start talking with the people as if you are coming and then they start thinking about it that way. 
Well, that's the mindfulness and interviews approach that Brett Hill was telling us about. It's like a psychological Jedi mind trick, if you will. Yeah, and of course, during this process, everybody I talked to was also in sales. So it's not like any of this was a secret to them. <laughs> and if they did the same thing to me, you know, it wasn't a secret to me. You know what to expect on either side. Exactly. Yeah. So the first chat was an informal one with the person who would be you would be working for. Correct. And then was there a recruiter involved after this? Were they the next conversation? The recruiter in this case was involved in scheduling and facilitating the calls with the next set of people for this interview structure, right? So the interview structure was great. The, the hiring manager wants you to talk to, you know, these five people and here's the schedule for that happening. Generally, we encourage people to ask about a salary range for a position pretty early on just to see if that meets what you're wanting or can accept, right, to meet your needs. Right. So is that something that ended up coming up in the first conversation with your new, you know, your would-be new manager, or was that saved for later in the process for you? No, I think that was part of my kind of vetting the situation and whether it was appropriate, right? It was, here's kind of what I was making at Google Cloud. And, you know, we just talked about whether that was like within reach for the position. It didn't raise any red flags for them. So we moved on. And then I guess you got information on benefits packages and and things like that, whether it's well-being allowance, 401k, insurance, Yes. At some point during the process or? I did ask about that. We kind of chatted about that along the way. I heard about healthcare plan, yeah, the retirement. A lot of that information was all in public, actually. So I was able to just read about the benefits that they offered. A lot of public companies will talk about that as part of their overall recruiting, you know, methodology is to say, this is the kind of benefits package that you would get if you're working here. Don't you think that you should? try to find a position here. Ah, okay. And then you mentioned the recruiter is more like a schedule facilitator, coordinator for the interviews themselves with different people. Were they also the ones providing you the feedback you spoke about in the previous discussions we had? Yeah, I think so. I mean, nobody was really giving me like direct like interview feedback, I think in real time, but maybe like talking about, Hey, you know, these are the people when you're moving forward with the process, you'll probably be talking with these people and probably want to keep in mind that, you know, for that, this role, they probably care about this. So you might want to think about having some good ways to talk about your experience with, you know, this point of view in mind. So, you know, that was the two regional directors of sales that I would have been peers with. And then a sales engineering manager who would be a peer underneath the manager, the hiring manager. So that was kind of probably the, if there was a set of rounds, it was probably those people in the first round. And probably if there were any red flags raised, I probably would not have gone on to talk to the next set of people who would have been the, the vice president of sales that those two regional directors of sales reported to. And then the vice president of sales engineering, who my manager reports to, my director reports to. 
I'm, I'm guessing that those were kind of the final two. Hey, you know, what are you about? Final vibe check, maybe, <laughs> you know? Sure. Um, and honestly, that structure is fairly typical. If you were to think about it, talking to the managers of the people that you would be working with is very typical as part of a hiring process. So I think for sales engineers, a lot of times one will have a technical interview with a potential peer and then a possibly a salesy type interview with the sales manager of the person that you know you would be potentially partnering with maybe even an interview with the person that you're going to be pairing with directly if that's known if they don't know then then maybe not and then kind of a final check by going up a level the the sales manager's manager and then the sales engineering manager's manager as you know and so those exact things happened in a direct parallel basically it was just all one level up because I was interviewing for a sales engineering manager position. Okay. And then as far as once you got to like delivery of an offer, mm -hmm. what I have seen happen before is you get a phone call from the hiring manager and they tell you the verbal right. details of the offer and ask you if you intend to accept it or if you need to speak further about it or maybe that verbal offer comes through the mouthpiece of a recruiter. What was it like for you? I think that was from the hiring manager, the kind of feeling out the shape and the numbers, whether these would make sense. And we talked about it. You know, they made sense. We ironed out, you know, a couple details, but, you know, it was very smooth sailing as, as far as I remember. Cool. Yeah. So it was, you know, just being upfront about what my expectations were early on, even for it to make sense to move forward, paid off, right? But I think that I, I want to acknowledge that I feel like I was in a privileged position because, you know, I was coming from a company that was top of market, you know, paid top of market, and then I was earning top of market, you know, there. And then, you know, I'm turning around and going, well, I want to find the right position, not just the first position or any position, right? So becoming a first-time manager was enough of a take a deep breath before saying yes to it that I needed to make sure that it was the right fit, that the compensation made sense, and that the opportunity made sense. And so all of those things were things that I was kind of making sure of along the way, and that allowed me to be upfront about it, you know. And then there's, I think, to a certain degree, you know, there's a limited pool of people who are appropriate to, to apply for these roles. Sure. So, you know, there's a supply and demand issue, but, you know, it wasn't something that made me go, oh, I'm just going to hold out for the absolute maximum money that I can get, you know, right now. Because that, in my mind, it puts the hiring manager in an awkward position because then they absolutely need you to, like, be like a top performer, like, out of the gate, right? So if you're asking for the same money that, like, a seasoned, you know, tenure professional in the position would get, then you need to act like that. And I wasn't. So I didn't necessarily ask for that. You know, I was, you know, kind of confident in myself and confident in the process to be like, okay, you know, from my experience, like, you know, I wouldn't be up for say promotion until after a full, like a full fiscal year cycle. Right. 
So I was joining before the fiscal year started, you know, the end of, or middle or end of a fiscal year. Until I went through an entire, you know, fiscal year with the company, I probably wouldn't be up for a promotion. You know, that was approximately a year and a half for me. And I figured, you know, that is probably a perfect amount of time for me to prove myself, to get up to speed on the skills that I need to kind of execute what it is that I needed to, ex- you know, learn what I needed to execute and then plan and execute it in that time. And one thing we didn't talk about in the last couple of discussions were, were these interviews remote, in person, a mix of the two? They were all remote. All remote. Okay. Yeah. But that inevitably is what happens in field sales. Not everybody lives in the same city. Sure. Uh, especially when, you know, one's talking to two different, you know, regional directors of sales. Like one lived in the Pacific Northwest and one lived in Southern California. I don't live in either of those places. One of the VPs lived locally and, you know, I would say loosely locally, like we lived within an hour of each other and the hiring manager lived within an hour of where I live. So technically we could have, you know, done that in person. It just, I think probably everybody's calendar was so jammed that that didn't make sense to make them drive somewhere. Yeah. So we didn't do it that way. And I assume most of these were, these were probably done in some type of meeting with camera on as opposed to just phone call? Uh, Yeah. They sent me Zoom meetings and I was just, I guess I became have become a camera on guy from my time at Google Cloud. So I was totally comfortable with that. What about taking notes? Mm. What's your advice on do we take notes during interviews? Do we not take notes? I know I like to take notes during interviews. What's your preference? So I definitely took meticulous notes during the interviews. And that is maybe, again, just something I learned to do at Google. When I was conducting interviews, I had to take meticulous notes of what the people were saying because I had to base, you know, everything, my evaluations of them based on what they said. And, you know, I always wanted to kind of copy paste those raw notes into a document so that, you know, somebody who had to make a decision could see what I had recorded them saying, and I wanted to be able to go back in these cases and see, you know, if there were any patterns or things that people were asking me that I needed to kind of learn from and prepare for moving forward, understand what they were probing for. Um, And again, for me, if I don't record it, I won't remember it. So, you know, I still have those notes and I can still go back and look at them and see what they were asking is relevant to what I'm doing today. And it definitely helps. So I would say, yes, you know, always record that kind of thing. And was this recording of notes done using the smart notes, the smart notes methodology by chance, John? I have to ask. You know, that's, that's interesting. I'm not sure exactly how like first person, like primary source notes would be handled in that type of uh, situation, but I did record it into Obsidian. So, you know, I was able to create you know, a structure and links to each of the meetings and uh, links from those meetings back to like a central table of contents so that I could find everything. That definitely helped. I love it. Yeah. Your question about smart notes really like that process would be, did I go back and extract additional learnings from those notes? And the answer to that is that I did not do that. But now that you ask me, maybe I should. It's not a poor reflection on you. I just know that you are very good at following 
processes that are very helpful when it comes to note takings and smart notes. And it, it was just a curiosity. I'm not saying there's a right or wrong way to do this. Well, I think that, you know, if I wanted to learn something from the structure and the types of questions that I was asked, I mean, that would be a really good thing to do. So it's probably something that I will do. There you go. I just gave John homework again. Let's, <laughs> let's see how much more homework I can give him. I also like to take notes. I don't know how many people have dual screens at home, but if you are doing remote interviews and you have dual screens, I like to have my notes up on one screen and the video up on the other screen. I usually tell people, hey, listen, it's not that I am not paying attention to you. I'm just taking notes on this other screen because I want to remember what we talked about during this conversation. And most of the time, people are cool with that. I just right. tell them up front. Mm -hmm. My advice is also if you are doing an in-person interview, there's nothing wrong with taking notes in that meeting. Uh, it might be a little bit easier to do it in handwritten note form than on a PC that you bust out in the in the office or like maybe on a tablet that you can write on. It seems like it might get a little bit distracting in that first meeting with someone if it was in person. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting point. Like I certainly, thinking back, I don't know if I asked for permission to take notes. I always figured that in an interview, it's implied that maybe both sides are taking notes. Yeah, you would think. What I tend to do is not look at the notes when I type. And that's how I learned to touch type anyway. So I'm lurking, looking at the camera or at the screen, which approximates the position of the camera while I'm typing. And I don't worry about misspellings or formatting or anything like that. I'm just taking you know, notes, not worrying about what they look like. I can go back afterwards and fix misspellings or add structure and indentation or things like that. Right. So, you know, hopefully it wasn't distracting. It, you'll have enough there just to give you an idea of what was discussed. It's way exactly. better than trying to remember it all after the fact. Exactly. During the interview process, you mentioned that you were able to meet with a potential peer who was also a sales engineering manager that, you, that right. would be your peer if you got the job. What are your thoughts on whether it's appropriate to talk to a team member that you might be managing in that role. My initial gut says probably not, but. Oh yeah, that's interesting. I think that that might not work. It just depends on the organization. I mean, what the question would be like, what would you get out of that? Like, what is it that you're hoping to get out of that situation? And, and maybe if it was a situation where the hiring manager was somebody I didn't know, and maybe there were red flags about the situation that I wanted to probe a little bit more. Maybe I might have asked for that um, just to see what they said, you know, or asked for a, a follow up interview with the hiring manager to do a little bit more digging to see, you know, how willing they were to answer, you know, specific questions about whatever I felt uneasy about. I don't it just that never crossed my mind. Like I, I definitely wanted to understand the hiring managers and the, the regional directors view of the existing people on the team and as an aggregate, you know, not individually. And that was very helpful to, to, you know, make a decision like, you know, the kind of overwhelming guidance that I got was, you know, these are fairly seasoned professionals and 
they probably don't need a lot of performance management. They might need help and coaching and, you know, assistance brainstorming as we all do. But, you know, none of, you know, you're not walking into a situation where you're going to need to immediately manage somebody out of the company like that would not be a good situation to walk into. Right. So, um, that, you know, that was kind of, I didn't even ask that question, but they just volunteered it. So (laughs) even better. Yeah. I like the fact that you got at least a high level overview of the strengths and weaknesses of the team. Cause you talked about your own strengths and weaknesses going into this. And I guess you somehow would match up like my strengths and weaknesses and the strengths and weaknesses of the team and how do we make each other better? Yeah, I think that was pretty important to me. So one of the things that I went into every interview with was here's what I think that I can bring. I think that I can bring a sense of structure because that's something that I've had to bring to my process. So anybody who's having a problem with structure, I can help them with that. I don't need them to use my structure, but you know, I can show them what structure looks like and then they can make their own decision about how to bring structure. I, I also kind of need from a managerial point of view, there's always information that one needs about the team's projects. So it always is helpful if there is a mutual understanding of how they are keeping records so that I can get access to those records without having to, you know, pick up the phone or, you know, ask them a question in Slack about, hey, what's going on here? What's happening here? You know, I can just get access to their documentation on what's going on. And then if I have follow up questions, you know, that's always better. I want to transition to talk about some of the differences in the way you approached speaking with those higher level VPs, someone who could be your skip level boss or your uh, business partners, skip level boss. In, in my mind, I feel like once you start to speak with people who have higher and higher titles, especially in interviews, you you tend to maybe get a little bit more nervous, have some uneasiness about what you should say, what you should ask. And I'm just really curious, did you approach those conversations different than the way you approach the ones of your direct line, possible direct line manager, your peer, and was the breakdown of the things they asked about, the people at higher levels, different than the breakdown of things that were asked of you at lower levels? Hopefully that all made sense. Absolutely. I don't think that it made me nervous to talk to people with higher titles. In our line of work, that happens. You're an individual contributor. And as a sales engineer, oftentimes you're interacting with customer VPs or VPs at your own company because they have input into, you know, the strategic direction of a product. And, you know, they are giving feedback to you and your sales team on that, or they're delivering that message to the customers and, you know, their executive team. You know, a VP is just a person with a title who has an increased level of scope and coverage. The higher up you go, the less tactical it is and the more strategic their point of view is. So that's something that has kind of sunk in over time. So I just assumed that that was going to be the case as I talked to these people with higher titles. I assumed that 
what they cared about was more of the strategic direction. And they kind of needed to understand whether I was going to fit into what they saw as their strategic needs. So I just needed to be open and honest with, with what I was about. I obviously had some assumptions about what their strategic needs were. And then I tailored, you know, my message about who I am to what I assumed that looked like. And then, you know, I was also very candid about asking them about that strategic direction because I felt like that's important for me to know. And maybe their strategic direction, strategic vision would be, you know, you know, at direct odds with what I can provide. And if, you know, somebody said, listen, I just need like everybody, you know, from these managerial positions, you know, down to the first level position to just be cracking the whip and really just, you know, getting as much, you know, you know, activity out of these people as possible. And, you know, that would have been at odds with what I felt like <laughs> the appropriate thing to do <laughs> in in that position would be. And so that would tell me like it wasn't a good fit. Fortunately, you know, these people were very strategic. They knew exactly the type of, you know, professionals that were reporting up the chain to them and a lot of trust in that process and that chain of command like came through. Nobody that I talked to really felt or sounded like they needed to exert like kind of micromanagerial control over like tactical details at the frontline level from the vice presidential title, like that would be a red flag. And so every single time I was talking to somebody was, Hey, this is, you know, I'm a first time manager. I will be a first time manager. If I get this position, you know, I'm very interested in that role. You know, the more I heard about the company, the more interested I became in the opportunity. And that had to do with culture and their strategic direction of product. And you know, it just sounded like a better and better opportunity. So, you know, I wanted to obviously um, make sure that they understood that, but make sure that I need needed to get some questions answered. And again, what they considered strategic direction, um, the strategic opportunity, their vision as leaders, you know, and what they thought that somebody in my position would need to do to be successful. You know, all of those discussions were out in the open and on the table, because I think that that is how it should be or else how are you going to get along in the actual roles? <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And I think it also goes back to what Neil Thompson shared with us that the low level individual contributor does not always know how to speak to someone at that upper manager, upper executive level. And in your case, you had had conversations like that before, or at least with people at those levels, whether it be at the customer or inside the company, what would you say people listening should do to help them get over nervousness of having a discussion with someone with that higher title? Yeah. Oh man, that's such a good question. I think that the first thing to do is to have empathy with that person, empathy for that person. And you need to understand when I say that, what they probably care about. Like imagine somebody who's in sales, like the, a frontline salesperson, like that salesperson in our business probably has somewhere along the lines of say five customers. And that's kind of their reach. The sales manager might have 10 people on their team. So they are managing, you know, the operations for 50 customers. And when that is happening, you lose track 
of the individual details fairly quickly on everything except maybe the top five deals, right? Exactly what an individual uh, salesperson would be keeping in their head is kind of like, oh, here's my five deals and my customers. Like sales manager probably goes, well, here's the five deals that I can remember, right? And then you go up a level, the person who's overseeing that sales manager, sales director, or you know, regional VP, whatever the title is, they probably only can keep, you know, five deals in their head too, right? So it has to be, they can't afford to be tactically involved in every single deal. Right. They just don't have enough time. They don't have the time or attention, right? And they need to steer like a much larger ship. So they're keeping their eye on the strategic direction. You know, they have a leadership direction, like they they need to execute things at their level in order to make the kind of day-to-day tactics of their business take care of themselves at the lower level. And then, you know, every once in a while, like the most strategic deals rise to their level and they need to be involved in approving or negotiating or something along those lines. But, you know, they don't necessarily want to be involved in the day-to-day of every single deal. Like, you know, imagine you go up one level from 50 deals. Like it's, what is it? 150, 200 deals like that. You just can't, that's not possible. Right. And the scope of these people, it could be region of a country. Like Mm -hmm. maybe it's South U S or maybe it's the entire U S maybe it's the entire U S for a specific segment of customer or who knows, maybe it's multiple geographies, multiple continents. And as the scope increases, the inability to get down to fine-grained details in every single place gets just untenable. Yeah, absolutely. So imagine you do go up that one more level and you have people, different geographies and different segments and maybe different verticals reporting in. So you have a healthcare team for the U.S. as well as the enterprise team as well as the commercial team, as well as like maybe there's a small business team, any number of those, you know, any one of those businesses is like a pretty large sales business in and of itself. And so you have to kind of have leaders in those positions that are taking care of that business and are experts in their segment and reporting up to you kind of strategic, you know, vision type details that they're they're making you know hey these are the concerns that we have and these are the the actions that we took and you just kind of go okay that sounds good to me you know like that's kind of like the (laughs) the ideal and then there's always going to be things where it's like hey we're kind of having a larger team discussion about how we you know handle this budget you know i have some discretionary budget and why should it go here over here like where's the the biggest impact that it can take and i need input from everybody about that and it could be, the scope could be a whole business unit. Like if you're talking Absolutely. about a non-technology company, maybe it's a business unit that makes, I don't know, tires or something like that, right? And there's mm-hmm. a different business unit that makes the hubcaps that go on the tires and different business unit that makes the, whatever you call it, that you hook up your compressor to, the little air slot. Anyway, not the greatest analogy, but still, it doesn't have to be a business unit at a technology company. It could be a business unit at any company as you get higher and higher up the stack or some kind of general manager of a, of a business yeah, within absolutely. the larger organization. 
I guess maybe we should have said organizational leaders within the company. Right. That makes it sound better. Okay, a couple more, John. You talked about the 30, 60, 90 day success plan coming up as a new manager. What's your 30, 60, 90 day plan? You, you referenced getting some advice from manager tools. So I guess I'm curious to know how much detail did you go into in terms of writing that out beforehand and communicating it to different people in the process? I think a 30, 60, 90 day plan generally is going to have the same structure. It, and it kind of falls into a similar pattern for skill acquisition. The first step is imitation. And then the second step is where you start to get to small variations. And then the third step is when you try to inject your innovations. So 30 days is imitation. 60 days is variation. And 90 days is innovation. And in reality, it might stretch out for longer periods than that. That, you know, hopefully nothing big needs to happen in the first 30 days. And in every single thing that I've read, the thing that managers need to push back against is you're hired and the first thing you need to do is fire these people. And that is a terrible situation to walk into. And, and it also doesn't make any sense, right? Like apparently the business has created a situation where these people need to be fired based on somebody else's, you know, idea or metrics and they're hiring you to do that. Like if, if that's an important thing to do, then they should do it before you show up. So that would be a giant red flag, right? We need you to come in and fire these people. Like, don't take that job. So it's all about stepping into a situation where you have the breathing space to just let the business continue to operate as it has been operating. You know, so here's, you know, for the first 30 days, let's just keep on doing what we've been doing. You know, if you can learn things and context enough to, to make small changes for like the next 30 days, then, then maybe you could, make small tweaks. And then if you feel like large changes need to happen, then, then maybe those can happen, you know, kind of in the 60 to 90 day period to date. I think this will be my ninth week, something like that. And, and I'm still at the, you know, very small changes. Like what context do I have for anything that has gone on that would make me understand all the things that went into having a policy be a certain way. I, I still don't have that context. Like people can explain it to me and I can feel like I know, but that doesn't mean that I actually know. How can you not have changed the world yet, John? I expect better. <laughs> well, I mean, I just, th there's some things that I just assumed were the case, like, you know, weekly one-on-ones. And I just instituted that right away. Like the small change that I made was like, you know, like, Hey, those need to be 45 minutes and not 30 minutes because, I kept on running out of time at 30 minutes. Like some of that is like my time management. And so maybe that is something that I need to work on, but there's a small variation that I, you know, implemented. Like there's an example of one. I like that. Okay. Summary question. Mm -hmm. Now that you've been through the process once, what would you tell someone else who is interviewing for a first time manager role? Wow. And you get 30 seconds. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I don't know if I, I'm in a position to, to offer advice yet. I think I probably have some reflections on what the job is like. And those feed directly back into some of the advice we've given before, 
which is, hey, it's a different job. If you're a manager, you're doing a different job than the team that you're managing. A big chunk of my time is spent in meetings with individuals just on a weekly basis, you know, and then meetings with my peers and then meetings with my peers with their reports and my reports. That can be half my week right there is just those meetings. Imagine you're on a team like you might have a team meeting with all of your peers and your manager. Um, and then you might have a meeting like for the status of a project, you know, kind of a, a cross team project that you're working on. And if you're working on multiples then you might have those meetings, but that's probably, and hopefully less than five hours a week, you know, my meetings at that scale, because I have, you know, a team that's reporting to me. So I have, you know, meetings with them individually. I have meetings with them collectively. I have meetings with my manager and my peers. I have meetings with each of the sales teams that my reports are pairing with, you know, and then kind of leadership meetings from the regional sales team. Like it's half my week easily. And when I say half my week, I'm saying like 20 hours and that presumes that I'm stopping at at 40 hours a week. So, you know, that doesn't actually give me time to do any I don't know, actual sales engineering, right? But I never thought that I was going to be a sales engineer as a sales engineering manager. What I can do is make sure that my responsibilities up the chain of command as a sales engineering manager, I'm able to do by asking my team to like do certain things in a certain order or a certain way that might not necessarily help them on a day-to-day basis. And it's really just for the sales management I think that keeping in mind, you know, again, back to the actual question that you asked, the job that you're interviewing for is not the job that you have been doing. And everything that you do as preparation should be about the job that you are thinking about or trying to take in that managerial interview process. So your preparation should be building relationships with upstream managers. It should be understanding what those managers care about, explaining what it, what value that you would be able to bring to managing a team. And that's not necessarily the specific team that you're interviewing for, but like any team in general, like everywhere I go, I will be able to bring this. What, what are my strengths? Like when I say, you know, what are my strengths as John? It's some of it is empathy. And then some of it is organizational structure. You know, if I can bring those two things everywhere, you know, then maybe I'll have, you know, the time to think of a third, third thing. (laughs) We'll just call that the X factor. Right. (laughs) I think that's really good. Appreciate that. Last one, John. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, when going through the interview process for something that they got really excited about, put a lot of pressure on themselves throughout the process. Like, oh, I got to get this. This is perfect for me. Uh, you know, especially with news of layoffs and things like that. What would you tell someone they could do? Just a couple tips to take a little bit of the pressure off that they're putting on themselves. I definitely have empathy for people who are going through the interview process or who have been laid off. You know, it's traumatic. Even just the decision to to make a change, even if you already have a position, you know, that can feel traumatic, you know, to go through the decision to to go look for something else um so that's you know the first message i have is like i you know i have empathy for you 
the thing, if I were to offer advice on that, I'm not sure exactly whether it makes sense to say, just take the pressure off yourself. Like that doesn't actually help. So let me kind of give my viewpoint on why I think putting pressure on yourself doesn't actually help you. Why to a certain degree, kind of a Zen level detachment is what will actually help you. You have to be, you know, and this is kind of, you know, something that I point to all the time. You have to be attached to having a good process. You can have a great interview process and not get the job and you should be okay with that. What else can you do except have a really good process of preparation, you know, researching the people who are about to interview, following up with them, you know, thanking them and answering any questions that you might not have been able to answer during the interview that you committed to answering any kind of thing that you do as part of your interview process. Those are the things that you can control. They might have a better candidate, <laughs> quite frankly, right? They might make a mistake. You might be the best candidate. And then for some reason they make a mistake and, and hire somebody else. You don't have any control over that. Their decision is some, something that, that you cannot control. All you can control is your process. So have a good process and then repeat that process, document that process, make sure that that's a process that you can execute over and over and over again, and learn to detach yourself from the company's decision to hire you or not hire you. Cause that's not where your success is. Your success is, did you have a good process? If they decide not to hire you, that's just a decision that they made that doesn't have anything that it, it might feel personal, but it is not personal. Right. And it's outside of your control. Just like you said, outside of it's hard control. to do it. Like it's really, really hard to do it. But as you said, if you focus on the preparation, it gives you less time to spin out of control about the what ifs and worry. Like I'm not worrying as much or putting as much effort into that I'm putting the effort into the prep. How ready can I be for this conversation? That's what I can control. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. As someone who is really good at spinning around in his head about the what ifs and what might go wrong, what might go right, it does help to focus on the prep. Yeah. I'm glad that we both have accurate experience. I mean, and I'll tell you, it might, you might say like this job is perfect for me and you might have to go after it like, a bunch of times, like neither of us was hired as an SE at VMware the first time we applied. Correct. It was more like the fourth or fifth time I applied, I think, you know, and it's not personal. They probably had like, if you make it to the final choice, that means like you're one of like probably at least two, if not more people that they all think can do the job really well. Like they yeah. don't break people to like a final round without thinking, oh, this person can do it. You know, now they're right. just picking between, you know, nobody's perfect. You know, where are our strengths as a team and who can complement the team's strengths the best? You know, who can maybe mm-hmm. plug in a hole here that, you know, we don't have anybody who has expertise in this area or is from this background or who can do this thing or has a specialized skill. And, and it might come down to that. It, it, and it's certainly, you know, if you make it to a final round of interviews is not coming down to they think that I couldn't do the job. Nobody who makes it to a final round gets that, right? So if you get to a final round and don't make it, don't feel bad. 
like you had a really good process. Just keep on doing that process or, you know, go back and iterate on your process. Maybe you can do a little bit better independent of the outcome. Maybe you can still be better. Yeah. I like that. And try to connect with each person along the way, make a connection with them, whether they hire you or not. Maybe they can connect you with that next opportunity. Oh, you didn't get this one, but I'll try and help you get something else here. Absolutely. I mean, maybe they were involved in the decision and they disagreed with it and they'll help you, you know, get that next position. Maybe they were super impressed and they thought you were second best. And, um, maybe over time they'll give you some hints on what you can do in the future to be, become the top choice. You know, there, there's any number of things that can, you know, benefits and, and it's not holding them accountable for and making them feel bad about making the decision. It's just, Hey, I had a really good time, you know, or you made a really good connection with that person during the interview process. And you want to keep on maintaining that relationship without any expectation that they'll give you anything that happens all the time. Well, in order for us to maintain our relationship with listeners, we're going to have to cut off this conversation right here because we can control that. Ah, yes. Until next time. Thanks, John. Appreciate you adding all the great context. Thanks a lot, Nick. Just a reminder, we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at NerdJourney. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at B Journeyman for Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore signing off. Adios.